Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. Um, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a new thing I'm doing. Um, I'm doing some uh, like live call-in shows. Uh, you can call in via Zoom. I'm doing one tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, June 10th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, so if you want to call in, we can kind of talk photography, um, talk about business, uh, look at work, or whatever, man. Um, check out my Instagram. I'll be putting the Zoom uh, link is in there. So if you want to call in, I'm just taking one caller at a time and kind of jump in from caller to caller. Um, so feel free to uh, log in. I'll be doing it tomorrow from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. The link's in my bio on Instagram at Alex Gagne Photo. And on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Justin Bettman. Justin has worked with clients such as Spotify, Coca-Cola, Billboard Magazine, and Google, to name a few. In this interview, I speak to Justin about his experience working as an art producer and how he made the transition to becoming a full-time photographer. I also speak to Justin about some of his creative projects he's been working on during quarantine. He's been doing some really cool stuff, um, so really uh, hyped to talk to him about all that. And uh, yeah, Justin's just a really kind of like cinematic photographer, does some really cool um, productions with props and this really unique locations, this cool stuff. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, Justin Bettman, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to have you. Um, how's everything been going with you, man, with the last couple of months been kind of weird times, but uh, looking at your Instagram, seems like you're staying busy, staying creative, but uh How's everything going over there? Yeah, it's definitely been a change, but I feel like I've been trying to make the best of it and uh, yeah, stay busy and stay creative, even if it's not always paid jobs. <laughs> yeah, because you're, you're based in New York, right? I am. Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. And what's the, what's the vibe out there now? Is Because is, obviously New York was affected more than anyone else. Um, but does it, does it sound like work's starting to come back at all or what's kind of the feeling on the street out there, I guess? Yeah, every week it really changes pretty drastically. Um, I think initially everyone was kind of in denial. And then I live on Broadway, which is like a pretty busy street and hearing the sirens every 15 minutes, you're like, all right, this is definitely happening. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think there's going to be a pretty large exodus of people leaving New York. Cause I think it's going to take a while for it to, to come back. I'm actually one of those people. I'm moving to LA. Oh, really? Uh, end of June. Yeah. So I, that was already in the works pre-corona, but uh, that certainly solidified my decision. <laughs> oh, interesting. What, what made you want to come move out to LA? So I went to school out there and uh, I always said that I was just going to move to New York for a year. I got a job at an ad agency yeah. and then it kind of kept adding on and now it's been almost eight years. So I'm originally from there, ready to move back out there. And I end up working out there a lot more than I do in New York. So kind of made sense yeah that's cool man um and i was excited to talk to you about uh, during this quarantine it looks like you did a whole project called isolation inspiration which uh i noticed it was on a photo editor blog i think last week or something um yeah what was that all about because it was like pretty interesting it's all these like crazy colors and these guys wearing these like interesting like body suits uh what was that project all about yeah, so initially I had a bunch of shoots that were planned for end of March and April, and I was kind of bummed when Corona happened, just like everyone else, that work disappeared. And I was trying to figure out, hey, what can I do right now uh, that still ties into photography? And there's a lot of people who are photojournalists. For them, it seems like a pretty obvious outlet to document what's going on with the healthcare workers and taking a photojournalism standpoint. But 
I don't have a background in photojournalism. That's not really my specialty. I like creating stylized scenes and situations. And so I was trying to think, hey, how can I do that? Um, and what do I want to tell? What story do I want to tell? And so I was thinking of like, what are some creative, funny, tongue in cheek suggestions of things to do during quarantine? Because I started doing this like the second week of, of the lockdown. Right. Um, and so, yeah, kind of came up with a bunch of ideas of different sets that would be fun to shoot in. And uh, my buddy, Sean Patrick Anderson, owns a prop house in Brooklyn. And we've been doing a project over the past year where every month we do some sort of collaboration and they have the space and um, they were closed down because of Corona. So it was just me and him in there uh, yep. kind of working away and building these sets. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. Cause I was looking at him and I was like, is this this dude's apartment or what is it? I was like, I was like, did he just have like mad paint on deck? It was pretty interesting stuff, man. Thank um, you. What, uh, so you kind of basically collaborated, came up with the idea and the prop styles kind of helped you up with all like the details, kind of all the props and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. Kind of working in collaboration and some of the, I kind of came up with the framework of, Hey, initially I was going to do a bunch of self portraits, but I was like, people will get sick of seeing me. So I was like, let's do this green man suit and change it different colors. And it's kind of this more um, high level conceptual piece where like everyone can see themselves as the green man yeah. and uh, whatever colors I ended up changing it to. So and that's, so, so that's you in the suit. Uh, we're all the green suit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, hey man, that's, that's, that should be like your trademark now, man. Like everywhere you go, you should just rock that on shoots, man. <laughs> For sure. That'll be my new getup. I won't be able to see what I'm shooting, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. So yeah. So that initially I was going to do self portrait um, of like just me and outfits and stuff, but I thought it would be a little bit more conceptual um, where we can all kind of see ourselves blending in and, and being that um, person. And then from there, the framework of these quarantine tips, we kind of, bounced ideas off each other would it be funny if someone's cooking what if someone is taking a selfie well okay what if we did a self-portrait where they're painting one so the guy's painting a dude in a green man suit um so yeah that's cool man how long did you work on that for because you guys did like i think like six or seven different setups and it's all different colors and different props like is it was it all kind of one week or just kind of spread out over a while Yeah, it was over like three weeks and i think we did 16 sets so yeah wow, that's impressive man yeah thank cause, you because looking at your work it seems like you kind of like bouncing like some of your portraits are kind of more straightforward um kind of classical looking but then like you said you'll you'll do some interesting like setups where you're building these crazy sets uh is that something you kind of always like doing because it's a lot a lot goes into these shots especially at, you do one series where it's like i forget what it's called like you basically build an entire set on the street um, you've done it like, I think there was one in Paris, a couple other countries. Um, what do you enjoy about kind of building these like sets, I guess? Yeah. So that project set in the street started, I was working at an ad agency and I was still really interested in photography and wanted to build these stylized sets, but I didn't have money to pay for a studio. Um, and I realized when you're building a set in a studio, all you're paying for is some flats and a floor why don't I just decide to do that outside and take advantage of available space? Uh, um, so I was living in a loft building and I collected furniture and put it in my friend's backyard and then just threw wallpaper up on a wall, taped it there and then rolled out a carpet, put down a couch, a lamp, a side table and did a shoot. Um, and that's kind of how that started. 
Yeah, because you did one like in the middle of Times Square. Um, did you like even have to go get a permit for that? Or did you just go straight rogue and basically set it up, break it down? Or how did you kind of approach that? Because you, you set up in like some big uh, popular spots. So when it first started, I was living in Bushwick. And uh, I don't know how much you know about Brooklyn, but Bushwick's kind of this artsy area. And so um, I decided to just do it guerrilla style. At the time, I did know that you should have a permit, but I was like, let's see what I can get away with. Worst comes to worst. I wasted these two models that I casted for free online, yeah. um, their time and I'll do it properly next time. But I was like, you know, what do I get? $150 fine. So anyways, I set up that first one. Um, and while I was shooting, people kept like walking by like, what are you doing? Can I take a picture in there? Um, and I think once you get to that scale of like doing a setup, people kind of assume that you have a permit, like even yeah. cops drove by and they didn't even ask. Cause like, who would be stupid enough to build a huge set, a living room outside without a permit. Um, so that's kind of how the project started was just all going guerrilla style. And then I did four of them and then times or uh, New York magazine did a story of like reasons to love New York and included the project. That's when I first released it. And a week after that, I got an email from the times square Alliance saying, Hey, we'd like to commission you to do one in times square. And wow. I immediately thought, hey, which of my friends made a fake email and went through the effort of pranking me that someone's going to pay me to do this project in Times Square. That's but wild. it was actually uh, it was actually them reaching out. It wasn't a friend pranking me. <laughs> wow, that's amazing, man. Um, and when you're doing the, those type, type of sets, like, uh, are you kind of working with a group of assistants to help you build all this stuff? Because it's a lot, like, especially it looks like you did one in Paris, I think. Uh, what's kind of the team involved in like putting these together? Cause like, like you said, you're in Times Square where there's like 9,000 people. So you got to be worried about shit falling on people. And it's just like, how do you kind of approach this, the logistics of putting these together? Um, it's actually pretty DIY. So when I first started the project, I was working with this prop stylist, Ghost Day Acre. Um, I was new to New York and had very bad taste in set design. So anyways, I started uh, doing the project with her when I pitched her on it. And then we did like the first three or four together. And then um, starting in Times Square, I've done all the set design myself. So um, yeah, it's just a lot of it is searching because most of the furniture for the sets is found off the street. My proposal for Times Square was that I would find pieces of furniture in all five boroughs and bring New York together. So the TV is from Brooklyn. The um, couch is from Manhattan. The records were from the Bronx. So anyways, just trying to tie it all together. But um, yeah, it's pretty DIY. For the sets that were done guerrilla style, I would rent a U-Haul, load my U-Haul at 3.30 in the morning with my girlfriend and maybe a friend or ghost day, unload it, um, tape up the wallpaper or put up flats, do the shoot, and then leave at 6.30 in the morning because I didn't have a permit. Yep. Um, and then I would just leave the set up and it said, take a photo, hashtag set in the street. So it became an art installation and people would add to it and steal oh, stuff. Shit. So you would just leave it there and you just leave. Wow, man. I would be so nervous. Like, I think I'd be like, man, if something falls. I'd be like, damn, that's, you got guts, man. <laughs> yeah. So I tried to do it without using flats for the most part for that reason. So if you're taping wallpaper to a wall, if that falls, it's not that big of a deal. True, true. Um, yeah. But the place that first gave me confidence. So the first set I did, I didn't leave it up, but everyone kept asking, can I take a photo? And there's only the 15 minutes where there's the perfect window of light. Yeah. Um, Cause I was shooting with available light. I wasn't using artificial lighting. And so then I decided, okay, I'll leave it up for the next one. 
and that one ended up being like really successful and it was on my walk home from the subway and i remember walking home one night and these cops were like hey you see the newest airbnb in bushwick 50 dollars a night you could stay here and they had no idea it was me who built the set oh, and i was really? like all right if these cops are making jokes about it then i think i'm fine yeah. and worst comes to worst it's 500 dollars and a good story if i get a fine you know no um, definitely but i was definitely pretty serious about trying to make sure that they were all safe yeah, when i did sure. it in times square since we did have to have a flat um, and that one was commissioned, I worked with a fabrication shop and it had to be able to withstand 150 mile an hour winds. Okay. Um, so yeah. we did some engineering on that one to make sure it was definitely sturdy. No, nah, it's really interesting, man. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The social media aspect of it is interesting because if you'll see, there's like a bunch of these, like, not that it's the same thing as you, but like in Nashville, there's like this popular wall that has like wings on it and people always get their picture there in front of it. And then there's one in LA. It's just like, it's literally just a pink wall, but for whatever reason, people love going there and taking like Instagram photos. So it's like, I would imagine like advertising agencies probably love that type of shit. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because I started the project in like 2013 or 2014, which was before the Museum of Ice Cream and all these like Instagrammable museums. Yep. And I like to think this was the more like punk rock, like dirty version of it, <laughs> where it wasn't quite as refined and the lighting wasn't perfect 24-7, but it was very <laughs> DIY. I did it with stuff that I found. And yeah. that was a big part of the project too, was I wanted to use furniture that was found off the street for the most part in available locations with available light. Yeah. So it was all these things that like, yes, it looks highly produced, but theoretically anyone could have done it if they also um, curated the same furniture that I did, casted the people that I casted online for free, um, mm. used available lighting, you know, and it's interesting to see even with an iPhone, it can look pretty good. Yeah, um, for sure, sure. And um, is it something you think you want to keep going? Is there like any like locations that are like on your bucket list that you want to do one of these at or anything like that? Well, I said Times Square was the pinnacle of New York. So after I did that, I was like, okay, I've knocked that one off. Um, and then I've done in London, I did it in front of Big Ben. In Berlin, I did it on the Berlin Wall. In uh, Russia, I did it in front. I was trying to do it in Red Square, but that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> oh, damn, in Russia? Yeah. Damn, that then. Yeah, that takes guts, man. I'm going to be fucking around with some Russian police, man. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So, but I did do it in Russia. So I don't know what's next. If that's a North Korea. No, I'm just kidding. Great, um, Wall, Great Wall of China, man. That Great should be Wall of China would be cool. I was actually supposed to go to China in January um, yeah. to do set in the street there. <laughs> Damn. But didn't end up happening. Yeah, everything. Um, but I guess to go back, like, uh, like how did you kind of get into photography initially? I know you mentioned you grew up out in California, but how did you kind of get into everything, I guess? Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area in Los Altos, um, right near Apple and Silicon Valley. And my dad was um, into photography when he was a teenager. And so he always had cameras and stuff. And he had one of the first Canon Rebel oh, wow. um, SLRs with like an inch back LCD that was very off in color. And yeah, I think it was like, you know, six megapixels or something. Yeah, those, th those screens were like basically useless. Like there was a screen, but like you really didn't do anything. <laughs> totally. So um, I was always around photography from him, but he wasn't a professional photographer or anything. And then in high school, I had like a t-shirt clothing company. Mm -hmm. So I would um, have bands wear my clothes on tour. Um, and I didn't design the stuff. I would have friends design everything. <laughs> so, cause I wasn't very artistically inclined, but I wanted to be within that music scene. So I started taking pictures of bands wearing the clothing and then just realized I liked 
taking pictures. So that's kind of how it started. I'd find bands in the parking lot before a show and say, Hey, will you guest list me? And I'll shoot photos and send them to you in return. And then, uh, from there, I started doing promo shoots before. So in the parking lot, hey, do you guys have 20 minutes? We'll do the portrait. Um, and realized that I liked doing that more than the, the live music, just because you had a lot more control. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, went into college and thought I was going to do some sort of business, whether I was like investment banking or who knows. But I did a banking internship after my freshman year. Um, How do you and- like that? How do you like that? Yeah, it wasn't quite my cup of tea wearing a suit to work every day and showing up at 7.30 and getting off at 6. But I do think the analytical and like technical side of my brain um, is fulfilled through photography, especially lighting. I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ratios and numbers that whether you're consciously or subconsciously calculating. um, So I think that's why lighting is such a big part of my process. But um, yeah, so I was in college doing that. I did a shoot for Little Romeo. (laughs) Cause he went to USC. Was oh, that master? Then, is that masterpiece son? Or that's yes. A, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I did a shoot for him, got a model release, whatever in the studio. And then like six months later, someone sent me a link and was like, was this a photo you took? And it was on his album cover and I didn't get paid for it. Fuck. And I was like, Oh man. So I hit up a friend or this girl I knew I wasn't even a friend. Um, who was a music photographer. And I was like, Hey, what do you think I should do? And she's like, you could try to like sue him. But honestly, if you want to make money doing photography, like don't shoot music, like shoot advertising. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, you know, when you see that Coca-Cola billboard on the like freeway, someone might've been paid 40 grand to shoot that. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> so then I was like, cool. I think I will uh, change my priorities. And I still shot a lot of music and did some music videos in college, but then I got interested in advertising yeah. and, uh, tried to shoot fake ads and I went in there was an alumni from USC where I went who was working at Ogilvy and Mather at the time so I went in there um, and showed my portfolio um, and I was really interested while I was there of like hey how does a, a photo shoot happen like what happens before the brief is given to a photographer um, and I was asking these questions like well do you want to intern here and I was like I mean is this how easy it is to get an internship <laughs> so anyways I formally applied and did get an internship and then intern there for a few months and then I ended up getting a job with Ogilvy in New York um, when I graduated college and then was out there doing a rotational program um, through different departments and I did a stint in art buying because I wanted to understand hey if these people are the people who are putting me up for jobs and hiring me what how's the sausage made and what goes on behind the scenes Wow. So I worked that, in there for that's like that's an amazing perspective because not only do you get to see how people get hired, but you get to see all the numbers and what they charge for X, Y, and Z and things like that. Totally. So that was super, super helpful doing that. And then eventually I ended up as an art director and did that for six years. And then like a two years ago made the transition to shooting full time. When when you're art buying like what perspectives do you take from it? Cause that's like, even me, cause I've never worked in an agency. I've always wondered like how much, how much power do the art buyers have in picking the photographer versus the art director? Or does it kind of vary from project to project? From my experience, at least at Ogilvy, I think the art buyers or art production team as they're now called is really instrumental in getting photographers in front of a creative director or an art director but ultimately the decisions made by an art director or creative director. Mm. So it's hard to, when you're marketing, it's like, who do you reach out to? I think the answer is both, but 
ultimately, if there's an art director, a creative director who likes working with you, I think that has more pull. Um, but for initially getting your foot in the door and being exposed, I think being in with the art buying is really important. That's smart. So at the, even nowadays, you're, you're marketing your work, not just to the art producers, but also art directors and creative directors. Yeah. And I mean, since I worked as an art director for like five or six years, I became friends with a lot of them. So it's been really helpful when making that transition and also understanding all the politics that go on behind the scenes and how that works. And when you're on a shoot, trying to make sure that the art director and creative director is happy, but also the client and understanding that when the art director's like, Hey, we have like 30 shots today. It's like that art director is probably not stoked to shoot 30 shots, but the client needs that. So how do you help them eliminate some of those shots if you need to, or just do it and do it with a smile on your face, knowing that they also probably don't want to be shooting 30 shots a day. Um, yeah. But it's just kind of a necessary evil for that shoot. Yeah. And when you're working there and when these bigger campaigns are coming up where they're spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, um, do you feel like, do they care so much that photographers have reps? Was that like a big point of conversation? What do you think? Um, I think a rep is a stamp of legitimacy um, to some degree, but it's definitely not necessary, especially now. Mm. I think if you're right for the job, then it doesn't matter. And I have friends who were not repped and then were up for a really big ad job and the agency wanted to go with them. And they said, Hey, you can go with them, but we need to have this rep who prices it out and produces the shoot. Um, yeah. So that way there's like a little stamp of legitimacy, but um, and a safety net, but I definitely don't think it's essential. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, there's a lot of ways around it. Like I've, I've never had a rep, but I've worked with reps like on project based stuff. Like, Hey, I got this bid. They'll do it. So there's, I think there's like ways around it, but it's more, it comes down to the work, I guess. Um, Cause what were you even, were you even studying photography in school or you were just studying business when you're at No, US? I studied business. I actually tried to take a photo class um, and they were like, you can't take an advanced photo class. You need to take the very, very beginning one. Mm. Um, and I was like, is there any way for me to place out of it? Like I have a portfolio of stuff I've been doing. Yeah. And I showed it to the teacher and she's like, yeah, you're not conceptual enough. Like, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, that's great. I'm never donating money if I'm the most <laughs> successful photographer to USC. I like it, man. Grudge. Keep that grudge, man. Grudge. For sure. Keeps me going. <laughs> Fires me up. Uh, do you feel like uh, was going to school for business like useful even now that you're running your own business? What did you kind of take away from that? Um, I actually don't know if what I actually learned in school was that essential to what I'm doing now, I think to be a successful photographer, it's important to have a strong business sense. I think I had a decent sense of that before from running the like clothing company in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of the stuff you learn in business school isn't necessarily directly applicable to running a photo studio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think the people I met at school have been really instrumental and the alumni network at USC is really strong. So I think as everyone gets a little bit older and are in a position to hire you, um, that will make it, a lot of those people work in the film industry. So mm. if I want to shoot a movie poster, like that's a good way. One of my best friends from there um, just directed a film with Sarah Catherine Paulson. You know what I mean? So those sorts of things where I think the connections and the friendships I made there will be more important than maybe the actual knowledge from business school. Yeah, definitely. Even like I went to photography school and I learned a lot. And it was a great experience. And I loved it. But even like some of the stuff I look back on it now when I was there, they were already teaching like outdated stuff. 
I was mm-hmm. like, I don't, I looking back, I'm like, why were you guys even teaching us this shit? It was like pointless of like what the market is like now, you know? Totally. Um, so when you're at Ogilvy, you're doing art buying and how long did you stay there for? I was in the art buying department for like four months and I actually wanted to stay in there a little bit longer. Um, but since I was in a rotational program, I wasn't able to. Mm. And then I had been working on my art direction portfolio at that time. Cause I knew long-term I wanted to do art direction, um, not art buying. And so then I transitioned into art direction and then eventually I was actually I would be on shoots um, with photographers and say, Hey, what if the lights coming in from over here and the camera's a little bit higher? And then I was like, this isn't fair to them. Yeah, I should just try to shoot this if, if that's what I want to do, but I'm not here to micromanage them. We hired them cause they're good at what they do. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, made the transition to actually shooting in house for a little bit. Um, and then left and went off to do it on my own. Yeah, how is that experience? I know a lot of agencies have like in-house people now, like even like I know in Boston, a lot of agencies, they have like full-blown studios and everything. What was kind of your experience? Like what kind of projects are you guys working on? Would you guys be doing full, full-blown campaigns? And like when would they kind of use in-house versus hiring like a freelancer? So initially there was no like in-house photographer doing like advertising work. They had at one point had some guy who shot like events or whatever in-house but there was no like in-house photographer in the role that I eventually created um but initially it was like shooting social stuff that had no money and was in a conference room with like a couple kinos and then three like Bowen's lights and like that was it yeah and I was teching and prop styling and doing all of it um and then eventually I kind of proved that I could do that and do it well and then there were some bigger social campaigns that popped up where I could actually hire an assistant or two. Um, And then eventually it got to the point where I was bidding on campaigns against outside photographers. um, Wow. So so they would let you bid. So you're like, well, I wasn't making the money. Oh, motherfuckers. So (laughs) I was, uh, I was working for them full time on salary, but then the in-house production company would put me up as a photographer and bid it out just like it was a ad job against other photographers. Yeah. Um, And then, I mean, that was really good for me because I, I remember my first like really big shoot for them. I think I was 25 or 26th birthday. I think it was 26th birthday, but it was like in Barcelona, 50 people on set, this big Motorola campaign. And I was like, I would never, have that opportunity had I been a freelance photographer trying to get my foot in the door doing that. But I had a relationship with the art directors and creative directors and I helped develop the campaign a little bit. And so um, they gave me the opportunity to do that. And then I think that gave me a lot of confidence of going off on my own and feeling comfortable doing it. Yeah. What do you remember about that first shoot in Barcelona? Like what were you guys shooting? This kind of like a lifestyle campaign pretty much. Yeah, it was at this really cool uh, location. It was called Corbero House. It was this architect's um, place. And we used these large, like, colorful geometric objects, so big spheres and cones. Um, But, yeah, I think it just taught me a lot about how to manage a big set. You know, I had six or seven photo assistants and tech or whatever. And then the art department crew was probably 10 people. And then wardrobe was three or four. And hair and makeup was three or four. And then there was 12 talent. So, it just taught me a lot about how to manage a larger set and and gain everyone's trust and um, work with the like production department heads. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And like when you kind of 
decided to make the jump from like having a full-time gig to going freelance was that like a tough decision for you um what was kind of your experience kind of making that jump when did you kind of know you were ready i guess so i worked out my boss there was awesome and let me um do part-time okay so i was using all my vacation days um for whenever i had a freelance shoot and then eventually i ran out of vacation days um and i was up for a raise and i said hey instead of giving me a raise can i just work four days a week um and then it's a floating day so any day i have a shoot i can take it and then i still have my vacation days yeah and then it got to the point where i ran out of vacation days (laughs) um and then i was still having that one day a week and i was like all right i think i'm ready and then the last thing in my mind that i wanted before i left was to have a rep um and then i had signed with anderson hopkins at the time and so um, I felt confident making that leap and going for it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Like, how did you kind of make that connection with Anderson Hopkins? Was it just from, did you already kind of have a relationship with them from them coming into the agency? Or how did you kind of make that uh, relationship start, I guess? When I was like 18, I was super set on like getting a rep. Um, <laughs> even though I had zero I just, I just want to give someone 30% of my money. Just take yeah. it. <laughs> no, I just, for some reason in my mind, there was this stamp of legitimacy. And yep. at that time I thought, oh, if you have a rep, then work will just flow to you like no other. No. Um, and so, yeah, I met with a bunch of different reps um, over the years, just trying to you know, keep the conversation going and see when they thought I was ready. I met with like Bernstein and Drooly. I met with uh, Red Eye Reps. I met with Levine Levitt, all like great reps. Um, And then ultimately decided to go with Anderson Hopkins. And I had met with them like a year and a half before I actually signed with them. It was a very long process of just like staying in touch and, Mm -hmm. and all that. But I think working at the ad agency, it was interesting for me to see which agencies were working or which photo reps were working with the ad agency and I asked every art buyer hey what do you think of this rep what do you think of that and they had relationships with all these reps so it was really helpful for getting meetings because they would say hey we have this young photographer blah blah and so of course the the rep would meet with me whether or not I was deserving of it yeah yeah, Um, yeah. but at least uh, give me a chance and so I think that that at least got my foot in the door and then it was up to me to to prove myself and in the work what do you feel like having a rep like has what do they bring to the table for you and like when you decided to partner with anderson hopkins like what is the overall factor you think that kind of made you kind of pick them i guess um i think one of the biggest things with anderson hopkins is that that they also have a production company that's attached to it called kindly productions and so i really like that when i bid on a job um I know that they'll see it through completion as far as production goes too. So um, if there's changes to the estimate or if the client wants to change anything, like it's all kind of one seamless thing versus, Hey, like this outside producer bid on it or my rep bid on it. But then the producer's like, we can't make those numbers work. Like that was really important to me um, and feeling like supported through the whole process. And then also it just really felt like a family. Um, there's kind of like two Stephanie and John um, Stephanie Anderson and John Hopkins started it. And then um, there's a, another echo Hopkins and Hannah Marchetto are um, kind of the next generation. And so seeing that there's like the, the connections of people who have worked in the industry for a long time, but then also the younger generation that seems like they're able to adapt to the times and understand what's going on to me, that was really important. 
Yeah, it's really interesting how they kind of have everything in house. So you kind of you you kind of end up using their producers like for all your jobs pretty much. It depends. I mean, we're super flexible. If I'm yep. working for um, a client that insists on us using their production, that's totally fine. It really just depends. Um, like, yeah. So it really just depends project to project. Yeah, no doubt. And when you kind of first uh, you're going freelance and you're trying to get your name out there. Um, like who are some of the first clients you're working with and how are you kind of marketing your marketing yourself initially? Um, as far as editorial or advertising? Either or. It's like once you made the jump from leaving your full-time gig to Ogilvy and now you're freelance and you're trying to find work, be it editorial or advertising or anything, like how are you kind of getting your name out there marketing-wise where you kind of doing a lot of in-person meetings, print promos or whatnot, you know? Yeah, I think in-person meetings are really crucial. And then also just emailing people yeah. The first uh, like editorial break I had was with this LA-based magazine called The Wrap. Um, I did like a no-budget shoot for them, but for um, Aziz Ansari. So then I had a somewhat recognizable face. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of helped me get more editorial work. And then I think that work helped get me in with Billboard and Hollywood Reporter. Um, so they became more consistent editorial clients and GQ. Um, and then as far as advertising, I'm trying to think what my first like real advertising shoot was. I guess I, for Mini Cooper, there was a creative director that I used to work with at Ogilvy. Mm. Um, and they were doing a shoot for Mini Cooper with this musician Labyrinth. And it was more of a lifestyle celebrity shoot than it was really a car shoot. Um, yep. But he was with the car in the shot. So um, they asked me to bid on it. And then the client's like, well, he doesn't have too much car work in his portfolio. Yeah. So I was like, Hey, do you guys have a mini Cooper to the agency? And they're like, actually we do. We bought it when we worked on the pitch. And I was like, can I have it for 24 hours? And like, you can't have it, but we can have our, like someone at the agency go out and you can do a test shoot and it ended up dumping snow. Wow. Um, and this shoot was supposed to be in LA in the sun, but I somehow made it work and ended up booking that job. So that was like my first big like ad shoot. Yeah, that's always like the tough aspect about advertising is they're very like, at least in my experience, like, obviously, you're, you're confident in your work, and you could probably make anything happen. But when it comes down to advertising, and that art director is jobs on the line, and their client, they're like, they want to whoever they hire, they want it to, to know that they can do exactly whatever the comps are, and they have it on their website, pretty much, right? Yeah, and I'm fortunate that I've bought like all my own gear so I own a lot of lighting and I have like a home studio here mm -hmm. um that I always tell like agencies like no matter what it is if you have something and you're not sure if I can do it let me know and give me 24 hours notice <laughs> um and a lot of times I'll try to shoot a spec thing just to really push it over the edge and show them that I can do it especially if if there's a week or two for the treatment um yeah. I'll really try to show them that not only did I already have this work, but I'm actually willing to create work to show you I can do it. Um, yes. And if I can do it with just me and no crew or whatever, imagine what it will look like when it's done properly. Yeah, exactly. And is that something you do a lot? Like where, say, I don't know, you want to work for Nike or whatever, Apple. Will you uh -huh. kind of work on projects in the back of your mind? Like, hey, I'd like to make this project to hopefully promote it to this brand or, or not so much. Or like, how do you kind of approach that? No, I just try to make work that I'm psyched on. And then hope, like Apple, for instance, saw set in the street and they hired me to do the launch of their new phone with that concept in mind. So I think creating personal work um, is the best way to do that versus creating work for a specific brand. 
Yeah. But if I am being reached out to by Nike to do a shoot that looks like it's involving a lot of gels and blah, 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 I'll try to shoot before the treatment is due, shoot something in that style for that specific treatment. Yeah. Um, just to show them, hey, I feel really comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think that's a smart move because like, even if you're looking at like Nike's new ad, by the time that you like create some project and then try to pitch it to them, that ads in the rear view mirror, they're already moving on to the next thing, some new creative idea or whatnot. So you're probably just better off kind of doing what you like and putting it out there, right? Yeah, and I also think that if Nike did an ad campaign and they liked it in a certain style, they're probably going to go back to whoever shot that. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully at least, you know. Yep. Um, Cause they know that person did a good job and hopefully they liked working with them. So yeah, yeah I think it's always good to try to have your eye on where you think the bu- uh, the puck will be versus where it is now. Yeah. And like, how have you been this summer? I've been asking everybody with everything that's going on with the pandemic and whatnot, how have you been approaching like marketing? Cause it's like this weird thing. It's like, shit, like half our producers I know have got laid off or furloughed. So they're not even in the office anyways. And then it's like, do I spend all this money trying to market or do something right now? Or should I wait uh, till everything kind of like, hopefully like slows down, I guess. But how have you kind of been approaching like marketing your work during this like crazy time? Uh, to me, the best like marketing you can do is to have good work to show. Yep. So I've been trying to create as much work as I can right now. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, there's work that, like I did a Nike campaign in January that came out in April. Well, mm-hmm. that was during Corona. So yep. I, uh, I haven't like done an e-blast of that yet, but um, I have been doing newsletters of like, Hey, this is the isolation inspiration series. And I did another series called Sofa Spectrum. Yep. Um, so I have been doing that. I also think that I think a lot of my jobs come through Instagram. So okay. if you're posting work on Instagram, you don't have to be in your face marketing, but um, if people see work that they like and it ties into a, a concept that they're trying to do, then um, that could lead to work. So I think just creating work with whatever resources you have right now, to me, is the best marketing you can do. Because when things come back, you want to be top of mind. Yeah, definitely. And with like Instagram, so you've had like companies or art directors reach out directly via Instagram for work sometimes? I don't think they reach out directly, but like an art buyer will follow me. And I'm like, oh, how did you, like, for instance, for Apple, I couldn't put the work on my website, um, but they did let me put on Instagram. And then right after that, I got hit up to do an ad campaign for this scrubs company called Figs. And I was like, how did you guys find me? And they're like, oh, we saw you on Apple's Instagram. Interesting. Um, So I think that, yeah, you just don't know. To me, Instagram's really good because people are choosing to follow you if they're going to see your work. Um, so it doesn't feel as spammy and it feels like they're excited to see that. Um, it doesn't feel as addy or or salesy. And so that's why I think, yeah. And it gives you a reason like that photo editor, our buyer starts following you. Then it's like, Oh, now I have a reason to email them. So they know who I am. Like totally. And if they're following you, that means they already like your work, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just important. Yeah. To me, that's like the best way in this climate to do marketing is like, just put out work that, that you're proud of and if people like seeing it on instagram then maybe they'll keep you in mind but i do think that right now at least there's not a ton of large production happening yeah have you been like keeping in contact with any like producers or art buyers like what's kind of the word on the street uh i've interviewed a couple art producers recently and it was like 
everyone's saying they're like, yeah, everything's just kind of on hold right now. They got to figure out like this getting insurance companies to sign off on these bigger productions and whatnot. But what are you kind of been hearing, I guess? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of the equation. I think that it was interesting the first like three weeks of quarantine, a ton of ad inquiries came in. Um, and I think they were just trying to see what's possible and how much would it cost. And then no one pulled the trigger. <laughs> yeah. everyone's like, um, pump the brakes. And then it went all like user generated content. Um, and then, but I think that there's going to be a need for like new work. I think we're already sick of seeing the user generated content. Yeah. Um, and so I think being able to produce, something that feels like high production value, but maybe there isn't a million people on set, I think it's going to have a lot of value. So. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't think we need another, um, we're all in this together campaign. I think I've seen about 900 of them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that. Uh, it's in good but, spirit. I don't mean to be a hater, but it's like, all right, let's try to think out of the box. <laughs> yeah. I have my thoughts that uh, in 2021, there's going to be a lot of, we overcame this Olympic ads. Oh, true. Uh, yeah, I didn't think of that. So yeah, yeah. I think for... that is definitely going to be uh, something that sticks around for a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, and one project I was uh, interested in talking to you about, you did a cool series called Scenes in New York and uh, really amazing stuff. And the interesting aspect of it, it wasn't just photos. You kind of recorded audio that kind of goes with the the, the picture series. Um, what was kind of that project? What was kind of your goal overall with that series? Yeah, so I grew up in California, and I had a perception of what I thought New York was like, and I moved here when I was 21, and certain things were totally different than I expected, but then there were a lot of things that, like, movies and TV shows and books accurately portrayed that hadn't really changed over time, yep. and so I wanted to capture these, like, quintessential New York scenes, whether that's the barbershop or the bodega or the fire hydrant, um, and try to capture them in this timeless manner that you can't tell, was it taken uh, in 2019 or was it taken in 20 or 1959, you know? Yeah. Um, and so trying to capture that. And then I wanted to find a way to make it more immersive and the photographs felt very cinematic. So I worked with friends who were copywriters at Ogilvy, um, and had them write scripts. And then I casted voiceover talent and wow. worked with them to, uh, do these voiceovers. And then I worked with a friend who's a sound designer and had him, um, kind of recreate the scene so it feels really immersive i call it a motionless movie because you look at these stills and they don't move but you feel like you understand what's going on in the scene yeah and like how are you approaching because obviously this is a personal project you're doing uh -huh. and some of these scenes uh like there's one where it's like there's like 10 different people in one frame um in you're shooting in different businesses be it a barbershop or a laundromat um you're basically just kind of pr producing these yourselves like where you like actually hiring talent to be in these photos or just kind of like reaching out to anybody you could or like how are you kind of logistically putting all this together yeah i think for me being a unofficial producer has been a big part of my uh my life as a photographer and trying to make a lot happen with not a lot of money i think that whole project i maybe spent a thousand dollars for wow. shooting all the different scenes mm -hmm. um but yeah, I mean, going to a barbershop and saying, hey, if I throw you $150, can I shoot in here um, for two hours? What's your slowest day of the week? Yep. We'll make it work with your schedule, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with the laundromat. What time do you guys close on Sundays? Um, so that was actually shot. It looks like bright daylight, but that's from lighting. It was shot at night after it was closed. Yeah. Um, 
And so trying to take advantage of that. And then also, like I was saying that I've owned my own gear. Mm -hmm. um, so that way on these personal projects, I can do it. Um, and then as far as casting goes, yeah, I use a casting website um, and we'll do a trade with a lot of these models where they want a photo of them that looks high production value and looks legit. And yep. then sometimes I'll shoot just real quickly off to the side, some headshots. So that way they feel like they're getting something out of it. Um, Which uh, just a good trade for everyone. What website do you use to find talent? I've used I've used Model Mayhem before. There's a lot of like garbage on like this kind of weird stuff, but uh, you can I've found some like good like sports athlete kind of model stuff. But like, what are kind of some of the resources you're using to find talent? I guess. Yeah, I use Casting Networks. Um, is what it's called, and so you choose by which region you want to do it. Um, but in LA and New York specifically, like I'll get like. I think I've gotten 400 submissions for one role um, yeah. before of people who are willing to do it for free and are interested in doing it to grow their portfolio. So that's been a really valuable resource for me. And most of the people you get on there are not, they're more so actors than they are models. So yeah. if you're looking for a, a Ford model girl, I don't think that's really your place to go. But if you're looking for someone who looks like they could be a TV show or a movie character, that's kind of a good resource yeah for sure yeah there's good interesting stuff out there um and i also so i was excited to talk to you you photographed some uh some really amazing boxers Dan daniel jacobs who's like legendary boxer and then uh uh bubu andrade who's I, I photographed as well um nice. what what was your experience shooting daniel jacobs because his story uh, just everything he's been through to, to come back and like do everything he's done was pretty crazy but what was that uh what were you shooting him for yeah, there's this company called Matchroom Boxing. Oh, yeah. Um, and so my friend um, is like the head of media there. So he shoots a lot of video for them. Um, and he's been hiring me to shoot a lot of photography for, um, for it's like Matchroom and DAZN. Mm -hmm. So anyways, um, yeah, I shot Danny at, um, in the Bay Area, actually. What is this guy's name? Um, wow, I'm blanking on it. That's all right. It's called Snack Gym. Anyways, the dude who like doped up Barry Bonds um, yeah. owns this gym. <laughs> yeah. He's like this like buff Italian dude. Anyways, that's where we uh, shot it. And it was um, Danny and Boo Boo were training there at the same time. So yeah. Um, yeah, it was cool. I've never been to like fight camp before and seeing that whole process. And they go in this dome yeah. um, that has like oxygen depletion. So that way they kind of build that up. And yeah, they were both really great to work with Danny is just like a really sincere dude. I actually didn't know too much of his story before the, the shoot came up and then I did my research, but yeah, he has an awesome story. Yeah. Those guys are, those guys work hard. Um, yeah. You got some really good stuff out of it. Um, like some cool, like you got a cool photo of like Daniel with like, it was like a portrait with like some gels and stuff. And like one thing I'm always kind of curious about, like, do you feel like to like stay relevant and like get work? Do you, do you feel like you have to like stay on top of like photographic trends or anything like that, or you just kind of like dabble with whatever you're kind of interested in at the time you think? Yeah. I feel like if you're following a trend, then you're following, you're not creating. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely certain looks that a client will ask for um, and I'm happy to, to try to create it um, or recreate it. But at the same time for my personal work, I try not to follow trends and try to create work that yeah. I feel, um, is relevant to me and makes me excited. And maybe that is something other people have done before. It's not like I'm reinventing the wheel all the time, but I try not to just do something because I've seen someone do it. I want to do it because I feel excited about that look. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of put your own spin on it, kind of your own touch or whatnot. Totally. Yeah, definitely. And with like editorial shoots, because like obviously you do advertising, but you do editorial stuff too. Like how do you approach editorial shoots? Because obviously a lot of times there's not big budgets. Um, a lot of times you don't get a lot of time with whatever your subject is. Um, how do you approach those shoots? Because a lot of times, like I said, you like, you don't really even know what scenario you're going to walk into. So you might have like 10 minutes to set up in some room. Like how do you kind of approach editorial shoots? Like do you try to scout if you can, if you kind of go within with like kind of reference materials, like ahead of time, do you kind of know exactly what you want to execute or what's kind of your, your plan, I guess. Yeah. I try to be as prepared as possible. And so if I'm allowed to do a scout, then I'll definitely try to do that. Yep. Um, the main thing for me that I think is a thread throughout all my work, whether it's in studio or on location is that lighting is just like a really big part of my work. And so I always try to fight for as much setup time as possible. So even if I only have John Krasinski for three minutes, if I can have two hours to light and set up, yep. um, that's really important to my work. And I think especially with celebrities, they're going to give you a lot of times what they're going to give you. And there's only so much you can do to, get something out of them especially if you only have them for five minutes so i think if you can light the scene um to be really interesting then you can capitalize on the three minutes you have with them and a lot of times for a celebrity the photo is interesting because it's a celebrity in there so i think the way to elevate that is by lighting it yeah definitely especially like celebrities they a lot of these people have been photographed a million times so it's like it's do you kind of if you're going to photograph like yeah like john krasinski or someone big like that do you kind of go back and look at like other photo shoots he's done to see what's kind of out there what's been recently shot of him or anything like that i will um one trick i learned from a friend who assisted for annie Leibovitz was try to google the hell out of the person mm -hmm. and see which side of their face they like being photographed because if you light a shot for the left side of their face and they like the right side, you're in big trouble. But you can usually tell there's certain people who will only have one side of their face photographed. Yeah. Um, and so you've run into that before where like you're setting some up and they're like, sorry, I don't, I don't photograph on that side. Yeah. <laughs> for how, sure. do you, how do you deal with that? You're just like, okay, well, all right, well, let's switch it up. You just kind of got to play it by yeah, ear. Roll with it and, and make it seem like, Oh, of course we were planning on doing that anyway. You know? Yeah. The left side was actually our backup. We knew you loved your right side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just trying to do that. But as far as I try not to copy a concept or something that the person's been photographed away, but I think it's interesting. There's certain people where they have certain features um, that they maybe like to highlight or like to play down. And so that's when it's interesting to see um, the patterns of how someone's been photographed in the past. Yeah. Do you remember the first celebrity shoot you did? Yeah, it was Aziz Ansari. Oh, wow. Was yeah. that, was that before everything like happened with them? All the like crazy stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what yeah. was your, what was your experience photographing him? The comedians seem like I never photographed a comedian, but they seem, I mean, they're funny. Did, did they kind of bring something to it or what was kind of your experience photographing him, I guess? So I photographed him at the master of none season two's like writer room. Mm -hmm. So I brought a seamless, set up my buddy who was working for mark seliger at the time um helped me out because i had no idea what i was doing on a celebrity shoot mark <laughs> seliger never heard of him yeah, yeah some up and coming <laughs> dude um anyway so yeah my buddy nate helped me out on that shoot and then um we set up we shoot for like probably three minutes and then he's like you have the shot and i'm like <laughs> uh 
I think we have like a half hour or something. He's like, okay, no worries. One second. He's like, I just have an idea. I got to write down. So he like walks away from the set, goes into the writer's room for like five minutes. And I made a joke with my buddy. I'm like, dude, if there's a photographer in season two, this is definitely about me. <laughs> and there actually was, it was this Italian dude that I don't think it was about me. Um, Did he, he ended up giving you the full half hour you needed? Yeah. yeah. Then he came back down. Um, we shot some more. He was like pretty quiet and polite. Um, I don't think he was like super on as mm-hmm. far as like loud disease that you might picture or whatever, but yeah, he was good. And then we did a couple shots outside and, uh, someone was like trying to like carry too many groceries and he's like, can I hold the door for you? I was like, I'm sure this girl's going to tell that story to someone else. Like, yeah, for sure. Aziz held the door. Um, and then I think that photo ended up, it was on the cover of the guardian, I think. Yeah. They licensed it after. Yeah. That's, um, one, th- that's one thing I was yeah. going to ask you about. Like, obviously you have a rep, but then you also work with the syndication agency. Uh-huh. I was kind of curious, like how that relationship works. Like how do you kind of partner with that agency? Um, Cause that's like some, it's kind of a unique kind of interesting thing, especially with celebrity stuff. I would imagine that comes a big component of it's another lane of uh, income, I guess. Totally. Yeah. When I signed with Anderson Hopkins, they're like, so do you have a syndication agent? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, do you want one? I'm like, yeah, is that how this works now? Um, <laughs> what, else, what else can I get from this deal? <laughs> yeah. So they're like, yeah, we, um, some of our photographers work with August. Do you want me to introduce you to Bill Hannigan who used to run Von Hannigan? Yeah. Um, and so anyways, met with him and he said, yeah, your work's a good fit. So sign with them. So yeah, after shoots, I'll upload my, the outtakes as well as the shoot and then like all the information and then they kind of handle the syndication. But I think that Guardian placement I got um, before I signed with August. Okay. Yeah. And that's been like a pretty good like partnership with like the syndicated agency and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it's cool to just have some sort of passive income. Um, I'm sure I make a lot less on syndication than Miller Mobley or Joe Pug or, you know, Ryan Pfluger. Some of these people who are shooting a ton of uh, celebrity all the time. I don't think that's something I do and I enjoy doing, but I don't think that's my like number one specialty. I always love it, man. Anytime, like even like not even non-celebrities, like I photograph like a doctor or something or like some chef and then they hit you up like a month later, like, Hey, can I buy that photo? I'm like, hell yeah. It's like free money, man. I'll email it to you. Here's the direct deposit. Let's go. (laughs) Yep. For sure. Yeah. It's especially now it's like really interesting to see how important it is to diversify your income, whether you have like a fine art gallery that you work with or syndication or um, yeah, I just think editorial advertising, the more pots you can have your hands in the better. Cause if one dries up, at least you have um, other revenue streams. Oh, definitely. And when in the last six weeks, I've licensed more photos than I have in a long time, just cause like editorial that they're not doing shoots. So I've been, it's been pretty good with that stuff lately. That's awesome, man. That's yeah, great. De- yeah, definitely. And I noticed you also, you direct music videos and do some motion work. Um, like how long you've been kind of doing, dabbling in that type of work? And is it something you kind of enjoy, want to do more of, you think? Yeah, I started doing music videos like pretty early on. Um, I had some friends in this band called The Neighborhood and I, they weren't anything at the time. And I directed like their first video for Sweater Weather, which ended up becoming like a pretty big song um, with another friend of mine. And then did a couple other music videos after that and then focused on photography for a few years. And then uh, last year, two years ago, I did a music video for Donna Missile. Mm. Um, So yeah, I don't know. It's definitely something I enjoy doing. Um, And yeah, it's been a a fun experience. 
Do you feel like you try to match the same style of like your still photography, the way you lighten things to with your video, or is it you view it as like two separate things or? Yeah, definitely. I think with my photography, whenever I shoot on location, I always try to bring a cinematic or motivated light sources approach. So if there's a lamp in the shot, I want it to feel like that lamp is lighting the subject or if there's a window. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that applies to video. I think it's a lot more expensive to, to light video than it is for stills. Um, Because if you want it to look like blasting sunlight through a window, you might need a, a 2k or a 5k. Yeah. Versus you can do it with a single strobe and you don't need any Jennies or anything. So mm-hmm. sometimes, um, yeah. And it's also just different working with a much bigger crew when you do video than when you do stills. Oh yeah, definitely. It's two different things, but it's really yeah. cool. I kind of respect your, the one series on your website, Acme collaborations, where you've kind of like partnered with a, what a prop stylist, I think, and kind of, you guys are just kind of helping each other build your own portfolios pretty much. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, Sean Patrick Anderson has been in the game for a while. So he has just really good taste and brings a lot of creative ideas and he's the best collaborator to work with on, uh, on those sets and everything. And then, yeah, they have this huge prop house. So (laughs) it works well. So we have access to kind of any crazy idea that we want to pull off. Yeah. It's a real skill being a prop stylist because like, it's like not only like knowing having the right stuff. Cause I always hate that. You'll see like, you'll see a photo. It's like, everything looks good it's lit right but then you're like if it's like the wrong tv or it's like the long the wrong ladder or something the wrong chair it's like if you just had the right one it would make that much difference so it must be you feel like you learn a lot just yourself kind of getting to work with someone like that who has the experience of like prop styling and working on sets like that yeah definitely i think when you're taking a picture it's only going to be as good as the the content you're taking a picture of so you can be the person who's the best with lighting in the world, but if at the end of the day, what you're taking a picture of isn't aesthetically pleasing, it doesn't matter how well it's lit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it, it really elevates it. And it's been cool being able to use your imagination and create a world versus document something that already exists. Yeah, that's exciting. It's like, uh, yeah, this the details with that stuff. It's like the small minute details really come into play. It kind of sets, sets them apart. That's why like, Obviously, Annie Leibowitz, she's one of the best at it. Obviously, she has like a fucking army of a team, but it's like she's got everything, every little detail down to the minute thing, you know? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I guess like to wrap up, like uh, what's next, man? I know you you're, you said you're moving to L.A. Um, what are you kind of hoping to do out there? What's I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what's kind of the goals moving out there? And is there any kind of like uh, – moving from one city to the other, do you feel like you kind of got to start over and find new clients? Cause that seems like it could be kind of a nerve wracking thing a little bit, kind of moving to a new market. Yeah. I mean, we'll see how that plays out when I move out. I have a lot of friends who live out there. Um, and then honestly I do more ad shoots out there than I do in New York. So, um, hopefully that should be fine. Um, but yeah, we'll see as far as what else is upcoming. I shot, this Hasidic series um, of studio portraits that I'm getting ready to release. So just doing the final edit on that um, that I've shot over the past two years. So I'm excited about finally putting those photos out into the world. Um, Yeah. And just kind of curious to see how the industry shakes out after Corona and, or 
I don't know if this will ever officially be over, <laughs> yeah, but seriously. what is the new normal and, and how does that feel on set? And, and yeah, it's interesting. I just got, I got an email from Smashbox Studios last week and they had a whole giant PDF of everything they're doing and they're like going all out. Like they're like doing temperature checks for everyone that comes in the building. If you don't have a mask, they'll have one for you. Then they're like washing down every like countertop every 30 minutes. So I, was, I looked, I was like, damn, they're really, they're not fucking around. Yeah, man, I think it's good that, that we'll be taking it all pretty seriously, but it'll be interesting to just see how the photo industry as a whole adapts or changes to this sort of thing. For sure, man. Well, uh, can't thank you enough, man. I'm glad we kind of connected. It was really interesting kind of talking about everything you've been working on. Um, but for people listening, if they want to check out more of your work, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, my Instagram is Justin Bettman and my website is justinbettman.com. So. Perfect, man. I'll link it. And uh, thanks so much, dude. Dude, thank you, man. This is awesome. Yeah, definitely, man. And good luck on the move out to LA. And uh, next time I'm out there, I'll give you a shout. That sounds great, dude. Take care. Later. Bye. So there you have it. That was the Justin Bettman interview. I just want to thank Justin so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Real pleasure talking to him about everything he's been working on. Um, Like I said, real cool projects he kind of accomplished during this quarantine time. Um, So definitely go check out Justin's website at justinbettman.com or his Instagram at Justin Bettman. Lots of cool work up there, and definitely go give him a follow. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts available on iTunes, Spotify, as well as the YouTube page, The Photo Banter, putting up some of the video recordings as well. And definitely, um, like I said at the beginning, I'm doing a live call-in show tomorrow, June 10th, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you want to call in, talk photography, look at work, or talk about whatever, um, just check out my Instagram bio, at Alex Gagne Photo. I'll have the Zoom link in there, so if you want to call in, like I said, I'll be doing it from uh, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, tomorrow, June 10th. Um, So thanks so much for listening, and take care.